You've heard the news. Now get God's perspective with more on the topics of faith, family, and the things that matter to you. The Ride Home continues with John and Kathy on 101.5 WORD. Writer and animal advocate John Kistler is back with us. John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming along today. Glad to be here watching the flurries. Yes. Oh, flurries. It's okay. It's March 2nd. That's, uh, and this it's going like, to be 50 degrees on Saturday. Happy so to I feel take better it. about it. This is going to be a hard subject. Um, you know, for the next hour, we're going to be talking about animals in science. And um, if you've got kids with you, maybe this is going to be an upsetting segment for them. I just want to give you a full, um, a full range of warning before we get into it. For people who love animals and for those of us who just are trying to be humane, um, this is something that none of us want to hear, but I think it's important to do so. Yeah, it's hard to hear about sin, and uh, unfortunately, every part of creation has been affected by sin, including science. Yes. But uh, we'll start. The first segment will be fairly simple. I just want to tell you about the ancient history of animals in science, and the Bible is the very first place in history that animals were in science. How so? If you think about Genesis chapter 2, what's the very first thing that God did in the Garden of Eden? He brought the animals to see Adam. And Adam looked them over, analyzed them, and gave them names. And God let him give them the names. That was the first act of zoology. It's watching animals, studying animals, and learning about them. That's how God wanted man to have dominion. In order for man to have dominion, he had to know what the animals lived like and how they behaved and what they were like. So Adam was the very first scientist Hmm. as far as animals go. But, of course, when sin came, everything got corrupted, and that included all the ways we look at animals and how we use them. Instead of thinking of how we can glorify God by our use of animals, we started thinking about how we can satisfy our own appetites and passions using animals, whether or not in godly ways. So that's how things started to go downhill, obviously. Now, in ancient history, it was the Greeks who started doing animal experiments. It's called vivisection. Vivisection is when you take a living animal and cut it apart to examine it. And the reason you do it on living animals is you want to see how they react as opposed to a dead cadaver. So you think you learn more that way. The Romans didn't like this idea, and in the Middle Ages, the church frowned on it because that's considered cruelty. To torture an animal for any reason is bad, St. Francis of Assisi, for instance. So the church's position was, don't do that. And scientists kind of had to work underground when they did their experiments. But that all changed in the 17th century, and... uh, We can talk about that after the first break because we'll start talking about modern animal experimentation and Francis Bacon. Mm -hmm. All right. So before we go into that, I I want to – when Greeks started the idea of vivisection, do you know what its purpose was? Well, it's the pursuit of knowledge. And unfortunately, it's what I like to call – I read this from an author. I can't remember his name. He called it savage curiosity. It's good to have curiosity. I'm a curious person. I love puzzles and things. But – When you allow your curiosity to overcome any ethical ideas, when you're willing to cut an animal apart when it's alive to study it, that's savage curiosity. I would call that an evil. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at animals. Of course, this is before anesthesiology or anything like that. This is just an animal on a table somewhere, restrained and being cut into. Right. Goodness gracious, what that scene was like. Mm -hmm. And so um, they did animals also because human cadavers and even living humans, of course, you're not supposed to hurt them. There is a strong sense in humans, even not Christians, just that the human body is sort of inviolable. Mm -hmm. And so the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, throughout the Middle Ages, no testing, no cutting up of cadavers. The human body is part of the image of God. 
was the idea. So you had to use animals if you couldn't use humans. Mm-hmm. So that's why animals got sort of the brunt of the cutting from science. I see. And, and so you spoke about St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, talk about that, that man and how he's viewed, and of course uh, the church has used St. Francis for his teachings to look at animals and animal rights. Well, he's probably the most popular of all the saints, and that would include Protestants. Even Protestants have heard of St. Francis, sure. whereas only Roman Catholics know of some of the other famous saints. But he's most popular because uh, he's, he was so friendly to animals. He became a, a, a friar or a monk and lived in the wild, so to speak, not alone but in a group of men, and his philosophy was to treat animals as brothers and sisters. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't ever eat them. He wasn't a total vegetarian, but uh, he did do everything he could to make their lives good, and he would even preach to them because he believed that uh, animals glorify God and that they might even understand him a little bit. I have a little problem with that. I don't suspect that animals would recognize my preaching to them, it's good practice as a uh, <laughs> as a preacher. seminary student or something, but uh, I don't think it helps the animals much. It would help you. So I'd say he was a little far, but his mysticism isn't as deep as the New Agers. They like to make him out to be some kind of New Age guru, um, as if he believed he was not a pantheist. He didn't believe that everything's a part of God mm-hmm. and that plants and animals are all one with God. And he didn't believe that. He was a very good Christian. He, I just think he took a little too far. Yes, but but in many ways, right, whether it was in his time as a man or today in 21st century America, he's as mainstream as mainstream can be in the right and proper way how we should treat animals. Absolutely, and uh, I'm happy to hear that the Church of England and some other churches celebrate St. Francis Day with even services where you can bring your animals to church. Yes. I don't see a problem with that. I've always loved that picture of St. Francis preaching to the animals. I love that. First off, I my animals won't listen to anything I say for like eight <laughs> seconds, right? That's their limit, right? So I, I can't imagine going outside and like the rabbits and squirrels, like paying attention to what I'm saying. But what about the the um, the relationship that animals have with God? I mean, like you said, St. Francis was preaching to animals because he thought, you know, perhaps they would understand a little about God. I would think that animals in some ways understand more about God than I do. Mm-hmm. Yes, in an unconscious way, you might say. It's not like you could teach them at school to learn more about God because they don't think abstractly. The thing about animals that's – I tend to agree with Temple Grandin, who is that autistic lady who has become famous for training and working with animals. And her best-selling book. I think her book is absolutely right, that animals are similar to autistic people in the way that they think in a very concrete way. Everything they see and hear and sense is what they know. And so they may have a much better sense of the imminence and presence of God, so to speak, without actually having any theology to go with it. They just sort of know there's a God and there's nothing else to be known. Right, yeah. there's, no al- there's a purity there's, around it. There's no alternative. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. I, I've, I've always been really moved by that. Okay, so we're talking about animals in science with John Kistler. We talked about the old ancient. Let's move into the medieval renaissance. Okay. Um, how, how did that change? Or how did science change? In the 1600s, about 1620, a philosopher came along named Francis Bacon, and he's known as the father of modern science. Now, he grew up in a Christian area, but I would not call him a Christian. But he loved science so much, he wanted to free it from what he saw as the church's iron grip, that science is being hindered by Christianity and religion, and that if we didn't have all these silly ethics, we could do more experiments and find out more about the world. In fact, God wants humans to be dominant over the world, and the only way we can do that is through science and experimentation. So forget all of the church's teachings about 
this and that. Just do it. Just study. And he believed in deconstruction. God hid secrets in all creatures and all things. And the only way to get the secrets out is to rip them apart and study them. That works real well for things like physics, geology, mm -hmm. the physical sciences. Mm -hmm. Where it doesn't work good is with biology. Because in biology, that means death. I mean, you can take a rock apart and you haven't hurt anything. But when you take apart an animal, you kill it or you hurt it or both. So a lot of people didn't buy Bacon's ideas at first. He was sort of uh, frowned upon for 20 years. But then Rene Descartes came along in France 20 years later. And he says, God wants us to take dominion and animals are nothing but machines. The only reason they scream and cry when you cut them open is because they have instincts that cause them to shriek. But they don't really feel anything. God wouldn't be so cruel as to give animals feelings when he wants us to tear them apart for science. Hmm. So obviously, pain doesn't exist in animals. That opened the floodgates for biologists to start ignore the church's teachings on cruelty and do whatever the hell they wanted to any creature that wasn't a human. Hmm. So that was Descartes is the uh, boogeyman for animal rights. So uh, that's a very strange convolution of argument to uh, to say that God would never have given animals pain because we are determined to violate them. And so, that, you know, God would never think that way. It is absolutely circular reasoning. It's an assumption based on an assumption, then finals with an assumption. I mean, it's a bunch of assumptions. And a lot of people argued, look, you're, you're crazy. But the biologists, this was their excuse, their justification to do what they'd always wanted to do. So things just went crazy quickly. There was a Christian writer. I've read a couple of his books. His name was uh, William Durham. And he was a good Christian, even preached. He would take animals and put them in glass jars and seal them and time how long it took them to suffocate. That way he knew their lung capacity. So he wrote a book on the lung capacity of little creatures hmm. based on suffocating them to death. How's that for a Christian scientist? Um, there was a fellow. Let me get his name here. Um, well, I guess his name doesn't matter. I think it was Hook. Robert, yeah, Robert Hook in 1667. He would go around England to colleges and universities, take a d stray dog, nail its paws to a board, cut it open alive for the students to watch so he could show its lungs. Then he would poke holes in its lungs, and as it suffocated, before it would die, he'd take bellows and pump air in it to keep it alive to demonstrate to students how the lungs work. I mean... That's the kind of thing that came after Descartes. In fact, one of Descartes' followers named Malebranche, he may have unintentionally started the animal rights movement. How so? He took the family dog and cut it apart at the dinner table. And his wife and children were so aghast, they went out and formed the first anti-vivisection society. Against their <laughs> Against husband their husband for killing their pet. Good so people. That's okay, how it started. Okay, so help me to understand what, I, I mean, <clears throat> you, you gave us Descartes' reasoning. Um, how, uh, I'm struggling to understand how people could be so cold. It, that's the very next topic. That is what we call utilitarianism. Oh, maybe we should take a break before we start okay. on that because that's right, a big all right. one. Well, all right, well, utilitarianism coming right. up next. We're talking with writer, animal advocate, John Kistler. Stick around. China, oh. the Forbidden City, the Great Wall. Back with John Kistler. 
talking about animals, talking about science, um, talking about the ways in which humans and animals were intended to interact and how we have done so instead. All right, John. So before we took before we broke, we talked about what happened in the medieval era, in the Renaissance era and how in the pursuit of science and in the eagerness to learn and to expand our knowledge base, um, scientists push the idea of the strictures of the church aside. We don't want to be held by that. We want to explore what there is to explore and not be held back by morality. Right. And the problem with that is, is when you throw out religion, which is the basis of Western civilization's ethics, you also throw out ethics. And so what happened is the scientists say, we're not going to follow the church's ideas. Okay, then whose ideas are you going to follow? Well, no one's. So what ethics do you have? Well, none. I mean, the only ethic became that that we call utilitarianism. And what that means is anything that works is good. Mm. If I can get a good result from doing something, it's a good thing to do. The problem with that is, is it's totally unscriptural. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you can get some good out of something, go ahead and do whatever you want. That's kind of what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, hey, if you ate this fruit, you would know more. Wouldn't you like to know more? You, you don't know anything about evil. God knows about evil. You could know about evil if you took this fruit, right? So that was the very first temptation is break your ethical system for your own good. Yes. Yeah. So the goal of science then became the good of man. That's what Francis Bacon said. Science should bring about good to civilization. And the reason it became popular is because it worked. We learned a lot by tearing animals apart. We learned a lot by tearing rocks apart, stars, you know, astronomy. All. The scientific method worked well. The reason it worked well is because it is learning truth. The problem is, is, if you, is it right to learn truth by any means necessary? That's utilitarianism, any means necessary. And unfortunately, when you take utilitarian philosophy to an extreme, you end up with something like the Nazis, where they could justify to themselves, they wanted to kill Jews anyway. But we can learn from science. We'll learn by torturing these people sure. to death how to kill them better. Right. And that'll help us. Right. And we will expand we will expand the earth so that humans can flourish the way they were always intended to. I mean, it's amazing how we can make any wretched philosophy sound grandiose. You make the promise big enough and people might accept it. It's the same thing politicians do. Promise them the stars. You can't give it to them, really, and you know you can't give it to them. But that's what utilitarianism did, and that's why Descartes' philosophy stuck, because science became so successful. I mean, look at the success we've had since the Renaissance. We've got trains and cars and airplanes, and we've got medicines. And the doctors will say, we've got these medicines because we tear animals apart. Right. The question is, is that true? Um, Anti-vivisectionists, that includes C.S. Lewis, one of the famous Christian authors. If you want to read some a Christian who's against animal experimentation, he's the one. He wrote books about it and essays. Um, but at any rate, Christians didn't oppose vivisection the way they should have, and the reason is is because we got so much good from it. Does that make it right, though, yeah, does is that, the does question. That, does, so does the knowledge that we have gained outweigh the evil that we've done to the animal. I don't know how else to say it. Exactly. And that's the sort of a question you get in law. You know, when the police fail to serve the warrant, the lawyers will jump on it and say, any evidence you collected without the warrant is fruit of the poison tree. Right. You're not allowed to take evidence. We take evidence from the poison tree all the time because 
we don't use it, we don't do it ethically. And here's one of the reasons we don't do it ethically. We've gotten this wrong idea in our heads that all scientists are equal. You see, all a scientist is, is a person who follows the scientific method and studies things in a systematic way. That is good. The problem is today, scientists are not all equal scientists. They're not in it for the research. Most scientists today are doing their studies for money. And I don't mean just for their own money, I mean for corporations. Corporations hire scientists to learn stuff. Why? So that they can make billions of dollars on the new f- drug, on the new procedure, on the new device that they've invented. So when you see people in front of Congress and on TV, a scientist in a robe telling you something, that is not necessarily someone who has done it rightly or with any ethics. It's quite possible that the corporation has paid him like a mercenary working for the army, a mercenary right, right, scientist. But it, right, but it, in the same way, you know, if I have Parkinson's and I'm seeing a physician who's doing research on Parkinson's, I'm going to be very grateful for the research he's done and whatever drug therapies he's able to produce. That's true. But what does that mean about your priorities? Are you willing to say, my disease is an evil, part of the evil world, and I'm willing to let godly people find cures or is any i want the cure so badly that anything goes right. i don't care that's if the you question. have to torture 100 animals to give that, me my and that's cure. and that's the question we have to ask ourselves right how much it's the same question when it comes to stem cells from aborted fetuses right absolutely it's the same thing how badly do we want to cure i mean i can say i don't need a cure to parkinson's that badly because i don't have it right well let me tell you if i have it i'm going to be looking at that differently and I agree. In fact, a few years ago, I had a wrong diagnosis that I might have Parkinson's. And I was, I went to some support groups and started learning about it and learned just how bad it was. And then they figured out I didn't have it. But So I've had that fear, and I understand that. What we have to ask, though, is does the kingdom of God affect everything in my life? If I'm a Christian and I'm a scientist, will I do things biblically, or will I do just whatever the company tells me to do? That's that's a tough question. Are you willing to work and do things that may be not ethical? And we don't even think about it these days. We we have just allowed science. Right. To there's do a, what it there's wants. an inexorable march forward when it comes to science. Right. However, and I, I am jumping ahead to the modern era. Um, but in the modern era, it's not even the Christian believers that have stepped up to defend the rights of animals for humane treatment. It's the secular world who's stepped up to defend. Yes, and it's interesting. because The reason that they've stepped up is because they're Darwinists. Believe it or not, there was a real huge drop in vivisection and animal experimentation after Charles Darwin. The reason is, is because Descartes and the scientists said animals are so different from people. We are they're so different from people, it's okay for us to hurt them because they don't feel pain like we do. They're not like humans. But Darwin came along and said, we are descended from animals. We're just steps above the animals. And then we started to realize, well, that means animals feel pain just like we do. Right. So why should we think that there's some kind of difference in how we treat animals and people? And those two philosophies don't meet. You can't say we're so different, it's okay to kill them and torture them. And at the same time, they're so similar, we can learn from them. So the Darwinists have brought gotten us away from vivisection because they know animals and people are similar. So isn't it odd that Christians are the ones now supporting the industrialists because we say we're so different. God made us different. They don't even feel pain. It's a fascinating discussion. A lot of questions for each one of us. We're talking to John Kissler. He is a writer. He is an advocate for both animals and for humans. And we're going to continue our conversation next. 
W-O-R-D. It's our monthly conversation with John Kissler, writer, thinker, advocate for both animals and humans. And we're talking today about animals in science. Um, Animal testing. We spoke about that in the last segment, John. Talk about animal testing today. Uh, How much of it is still done? And if so, I'm saying that you're nodding. So I'm, I'm assuming there is a lot of it that is still done today. Yes. Um, the reason I want to tell you why we have the system we have today, and it all has to do with lawyers, believe it or not. During the Great Depression, people were so poor they couldn't afford to go to doctors or buy real medicine. And so what happened is a lot of shysters and hucksters were out there selling these all-cure elixirs. You know, give me five sure, cents right. for this bottle and you drink it and you'll cure baldness and you'll right. fix cancer. Coca-Cola, sir. It was supposed to, you know, a tonic for your headache. or Exactly. So what happened is thousands of people died from whatever nasty chemicals these guys were selling. And so in 1938, late in the Depression, Congress passed a law saying, you have to prove that a product you sell is safe. Well, all the companies are like, okay, how do we prove that it's safe? Oh, we test it on animals. We pour it down their throats, and if they die, it's not safe. So they developed the LD50 test, which means lethal dose 50, which means if half the animals die taking it, that's not a good dose for humans. So in order to protect themselves by selling products, companies have to do animal experimentation to prove to the USDA and the FDA that their product is safe. But the real reason they do it is because you sue. If you sue them because you were hurt by a product, they go to the judge and say, look, we tested this on 8,000 animals and it didn't hurt any Mm -hmm. of them. We did our best. Mm -hmm. So really, animal experimentation today is largely nothing but a cover for companies to make money, to prove that they tried to make something Okay, but here's the thing. How else would that, how, what would be an alternative for, for scientists to be testing new drug therapies? Oh, that, that's a very good question. There, there are um, cultures that they try in dishes, you know, petri dishes as opposed to live animals, and they're becoming more effective. But that is a good question. How do you prove something is safe before you start giving it to people? I don't deny it. It's a tough question. And I'm not saying that every animal experiment is always wrong. I'm just saying the level of experimentation we have, thousands upon thousands, millions of animals a year, is because of the legal system. Now, a lot of companies are saying, oh, we're cruelty-free now. And, you know, you'll see that label on their products. But don't forget what multinational corporations are. Donald Trump's opposing these multinational corporations because they go to other countries to avoid paying taxes. They go to other countries to get cheap labor. Another reason they go to other company countries is because there's no laws against cruelty to animals and there's no one to watch them and accuse them on TV of doing right, it. Exactly. So let's say you're Monsanto and Bear and you're having a merger. Bear can say, we're cruelty free. We got nothing. They don't tell you that Monsanto, that they may own soon, is doing all the tests in the Philippines or China. Got it. Right. So there could be less experiments if the legal system, if we had tort reform. If you weren't able to sue a company into bankruptcy for one problem. Right. It's, it, but again, it's not a straightforward issue. And, you know, nope. we've talked so many times about this. You are not a crusader. You're not a PETA member. You're not out. You're not a vegetarian yourself. Right. Nope. So from the very beginning, you have put yourself squarely in the middle. You are an animal advocate and you are an advocate for humans. Right. Yeah. You just want us you want us to be as responsible and kind and ethical as we can possibly be and being in the middle is the worst it means everybody hates me equally right so but in this instance perhaps even more so than any other exactly i hate to oppose science i love science i watch documentaries all the time i was gonna time. say you're you're a science geek exactly but there have to be limits on it and that's why we're coming to the last subject which is genetic engineering because this is actually scary 
In the past, we've changed animals through domestication. You breed this horse with that horse and you get a little different horse. You breed this dog with that dog, you get a little different dog. That's normal domestication. Genetic engineering is where you just start messing with the DNA. And what they're doing nowadays is combining different creatures' DNA. And they have good purposes sometimes. But let me tell you about when this started was in 1988. When uh, Bausch and, or 1987, Bausch and Lam applied for a patent and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that they could have a patent on a new life form. What it was was a mouse that they designed to be born genetically engineered with cancer. They always have cancer so we can look for cancer treatments. Okay. That's called the Onco Mouse. Well, since then, you've got places like China where they're just randomly messing with DNA. They're getting mice with tusks, mice with no legs, mice that walk in circles to the left, mice that walk in circles to the right, mice with no eyes. We're talking about monsters. We are creating monsters at random. And they do it in China. We don't do it here, but some of our companies do it in China because mm. it's not legal here. Mm. But, you know, we have actually now patented humans. Um, another company, oh, no, it's a in Texas, the Baylor University in Texas in 1988 filed a patent in Europe on a woman that they genetically altered her to use as a drug factory. Wait, oh, I didn't know people could be patented. Parts, yes, they can be patented in Europe. They can't be patented in the U.S. It's illegal in the U.S., but you're a multinational company. You can do it elsewhere. And they're going to use her, if it's ever legal, as a drug factory. Now, let me explain how that works. For instance, we do that with goats. Um, I lived in Logan, Utah for two years. Nice little town. I didn't know until this year there's a company there that makes goats, genetically engineers goats, to produce spider web silk. Because spider web silk is really strong and useful. You can use it in bulletproof vests. If you get goats to squirt out spider webs, you can make lots of spider webs, right? Is that kind of weird? Yeah. It seems kind of weird to me. You've got glowing fish. Meat companies are trying to design cows and pigs with no legs so that they don't need to walk around. You don't have to give them a yard. They're trying to produce chickens with no feathers so you don't have to boil the feathers right, off. Right. These are the kind of things. Um, you have so much trouble finding an organ. Organ transplants cost a fortune. It's rare, hard to find an organ. They're now testing animals. They're putting human DNA in pigs and cows to try to get human hearts and livers to grow in their bodies so that you can kill the cow to get a new heart for you. A human heart out of a cow. It's called a chimera. It's when you mm. mix hybrids of humans right. and other animals, we could end up with monsters. And nobody cares. In fact, the USDA removed the only committee they had that watched genetic engineering. They said it was unnecessary. It was a waste of money. So no one oversees Never, genetic right, engineering right. in the United States. Okay, so for, uh, our, our time's winding down. Talk about a Christian perspective then on genetic engineering, because when it comes to genetic-based disease, we want to do everything we can to ameliorate that or at least treat it. One of the questions is whether it doesn't seem that a lot of the genetic engineering that's being done is for human health. It's for the purposes of developing new creatures for perhaps the military. You know, the Army is actually experimenting with putting bugs, it's funny, on an insect, by bug, I mean an audio device. You can get a beetle. You can put a little uh, microphone on him, and you can fly him in and spy on people, you know, or have a little camera. You connect something to his head, and you remote control the beetle to make him fly where you want. You know, a lot of what we're doing is not for human health. That's the cover. Scientists say, don't regulate genetic engineering. We need it to stay competitive with other countries because they're going to do it anyway. Are we really doing it for human health? Nobody's overseeing it. 
I have trouble believing that a lot of these companies are entirely altruistic and are looking out for us. I'm sure some of them are. Some doctors are trying to make it so that we can make a pig heart work in a human. I don't know. It takes a whole lot of time to talk about whether that's right. Mm -hmm. What worries me is the idea of producing new creatures. God created creatures in kinds and species. Is it right to create Godzilla if we can? Let's say he could defend our country. He could shoot down nuclear missiles. Is it okay then to make Godzilla? <laughs> I mean, there's other questions. How do you feed him? But when is it wrong to create life? When did God ever say, you, it's okay for you to make your own life? As far as I know, it's never happened. But that's what we're trying to do, and that's what worries me that we're not even talking about it. A subject with a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different tendrils that reach into all different parts of our lives, from what we eat to the medications that we take to the stuff that we wear. Um, John Kistler's with us. Uh, we need to step away, but when we come back, we'll close it up. Thanks for being with us today on The Ride Home. W-O-R-D. Thanks for joining us on The Ride Home today. Kathy Emmons in the studio with John Kistler. John Hall is already headed out to the uh, premiere of The Shack, which will be happening at the waterfront tonight. So if you're headed out to see that, please look for John and say hi. Um, John Kistler, in, in closing, um, as I said before, you have always wonderfully situated yourself in what I think is a fair place. You are an advocate for animals, but also an advocate for humans, which makes it harder because this calls for wisdom. Right, because there's gray. So everybody sees black and white, and they don't realize there's a lot of gray in the middle. Right, that's where I am. Is right, in the gray. Right. So we're talking about animal experimentation. A lot of things you've told us today are horrific. Yeah. Um, Let's end with something nicer. Okay. I'm not against all animal experimentation, and I'm not saying that it's all evil. I'm saying a lot of it is evil and nasty. But for example, there are programs. There's a beagle that's been genetically engineered to be useful for testing in various diseases. And the practice that they've used on the beagles is we test them, we do our experiments on them. Some of them are a little bit painful, but when we're done, we adopt them out to homes. And mm. there are people who specifically adopt tested beagles. I don't have a big problem with that because they've had a life. They're going to have a life. What I have a problem with is avoiding the biblical principles of giving the animals proper food and water, proper shelter and protection, and having a life. I don't like the idea that I'm going to create a mouse in a test tube, it's going to come out with no eyes, and I'm going to torture it for its entire life, and then kill it and grind it up. That I have a problem with. It had no life, it had no kindness, no mercy. There is nothing of God in that situation. But with the beagle, you do some tests, you learn something, it stays alive, and it has a good life afterward. That's okay, I think. Mm -hmm. So I don't want everyone to think I'm a Luddite. I'm not an Amish guy. I drive around in a car, and I do eat meat, but... We have to think of what is right and not just what can be done. Right. And as you said, that's not just in our relationship to animals, but that's in our relationship to um, our clothing, in um, where we bank, where we buy our clothes, and how we treat the person that lives next to us, right? Jesus is your Lord no matter what your job is. And if you're a scientist, your job is to treat things as if Jesus is their Lord too. Yeah. That's what we're not doing. Well, John, I'll tell you, I have always appreciated you coming in here because you talk about animals and their relationship to humans in a way I haven't heard. I either hear the utilitarian perspective, which is, look, we're the, we're the top dogs, we're in charge and we can do whatever we want, or the PETA crowd, which is I'm going to lay down and dress like a turkey the day before Thanksgiving on Grant Street so that I can, you know, align myself with all animals. And something inside me says that neither one of those perspectives is the right one. 
kind of like looking at Washington right now. When you think, I just something in me tells me neither one of these perspectives is the right one. There has to be some melding. Um, thesis, synthesis, antithesis. I believe that was Immanuel Kant. That's usually how things work out. You get extremists on one side, you get extremists on the other side, you meet in the middle somewhere, and that's usually where the truth is. That's what I'm hoping my position is, is that it's somewhere in the middle there and that that's the truth. Yeah. Okay, we, we have two minutes left, John. I just want to ask you to tell us, you brought a copy of your of not your latest book. That was my fourth book but about fourth 10 years book. ago. Yeah. So this is called War Elephants. Just tell us a little bit about this. War Elephants is a history of elephants as they've been used in war by armies throughout human history. So they've been used in ancient India and ancient China, and they were used by Alexander the Great and his warriors. They were used by Rome more than the others. And they were even used as recently as the Vietnam War by the Viet Cong carrying munitions to the south. And it was so bad that the Air Force was ordered to kill elephants on sight with their airplanes, shoot them down, because they might be carrying goods for the enemy. So um, elephants have had a long history wow. in warfare, and that's I included a lot of illustrations. Uh, I, that's my favorite book, and it's out in paperback now, too. I'll put a link to this book, War Elephants, up on our uh, Facebook page, The Ride Home with John and Kathy. Um, John, you went and lived with an elephant for a while. Sido Yai. That was his name. His name means no tusks fat. He was the Casanova I, I, I like that name. of elephants. Um, every female elephant in Thailand has pretty much been bred by him, so his genetics are secure for decades to come. <laughs> He's the king of the mountain. That's John Kistler. All the information about someone who's an animal advocate and a human advocate available right now on our Facebook page. Have a great night, Pittsburgh. Thanks so much for being with us. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk with John Hall and Kathy Emmons, a production of Word FM and Salem Communications.